the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, we're at the end of what's called the Lenten season. In fact, we're in the final days, plowing into Resurrection Weekend. You know, Good Friday through Easter Sunday, which I'd rather call Resurrection Day. So, friends, I'm kind of in a quandary, because this is one of my favorite seasons of the year, celebrating both the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. I have the unenviable task of sharing both Good Friday's grand truth and Sunday's glorious truth in one session. You know, friends, some people have a view of God that's expressed this way. How lucky God is to dwell in heaven where everything's just sweetness and light. No weeping, pain, fear, no hunger, no hatred. What could God possibly know about what humans have been forced to endure in this world? It sure seems that God has led a pretty sheltered life. Well, friends, imagine for a moment that at the end of time... Billions of people are scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Some groups up front talk heatedly, not with cringing shame, but actually with belligerence. How could God judge us, one man said. What does he know about suffering, snapped a woman. She then jerked back a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. From another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime except being black. We suffocated in slave ships. We were wrenched from loved ones, toiled till death gave release. Across the plain, as far as the eye could see, were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live up in heaven. No weeping, pain, fear, no hunger, not even any hatred. Indeed, what did God know about what humans had been forced to endure in this world? They began saying, after all, God leads a pretty sheltered life. Each group then sent out a leader chosen because they suffered the most, a Jew, a black, an untouchable from India, an illegitimate person, a victim of Hiroshima, and one from a Siberian slave camp. 
They met in the center of the plain and consulted with each other. Finally, they were ready to present their case. It was really quite simple. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they endured. So they decided that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. But because he was God, they imposed certain safeguards to be sure he could not use his divine powers to help himself, like, let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted so that no one would know who his real father is. Let him champion a cause so just but so radical that it brings down upon him the hate, condemnation, and efforts of every major traditional and established religious authority to eliminate him. Let him try to describe what no person's ever seen, tasted, heard, or smelled. Let him try to communicate God. Let him be betrayed by his dearest friend. Let him be indicted on false charges, tried before a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him experience what it's like to be terribly alone and completely abandoned by every living thing. Let him be tortured, and let him die. Let him die the most humiliating death with common thieves." As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the great throngs of people scattered across the huge plain before God's throne. When the last one had finished pronouncing his sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one even moved. Because all of a sudden they all realized God had already served his sentence. Friends, God loved the world so much he didn't send an angel. God loved the world so much he didn't send a committee. God loved the world so much he did send his only son, Jesus. God the Son became human and lived among us. Friends, aren't we sometimes guilty of thinking of God the way those groups did, who stood before his throne and concluded, God leads a pretty sheltered life, you know, way out there, way up there, so to speak? And there's actually a word for that perception in theology. It's transcendence. It's a fancy word for God being far above us in many ways, seemingly distant from us. But if this is the only way we perceive God, we've left out an important piece of the puzzle, the other half of the story, the other side of the coin, if you will. Our theology would be incomplete unless we also perceive God's imminence. This is another fancy theological word for today. It means for our context, very near or present with us. So friends, the Christian view of God is that the transcendent God became very near or present with us in Jesus and why Jesus is called the God-man. Through the lens of the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we learn that God has not led a pretty sheltered life. In that one phrase, friends, the God-man, we see and experience both the transcendence and imminence of God. Transcendence in the word God and imminence in the word man. We may at times even wonder, just how near is God to us? Well, Jesus himself said it best in John fourteen twenty three. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Then shortly after in John fifteen four, Jesus adds, Abide in me, and I in you. 
Jesus abiding in us meant God was as near as he could be. Friends, I'm often asked, what's so good about Good Friday? Or why is it called Good Friday? What's behind these questions is a reasonable wonder. It certainly wasn't good for Jesus, right? And it certainly wasn't good for his followers either. After all, their hopes were totally dashed to the ground, weren't they? This is what scripture tells us, right? Friends, the most revealing and telling text that for me is remarkable every time I read it and makes me shudder is Luke 24, the account of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, you know the story. Remember when Jesus, after his resurrection, briefly disguises himself and tags along with these two disciples? He even asks them, what are you two discussing? Let's pick up the story at verse 17. They stood still, their faces downcast. Now, I have to pause here for a moment. We can easily just glide right past this verse and completely miss the significant truth revealed here, because the key word is downcast. Just listen to some other translations of this word. Looking sad, the ESV. Sadness written across their faces, the NLT. Looking discouraged, the CSB. Looking sad and gloomy, the CEV. Looking full of sorrow, Weymouth's New Testament. A few other translations repeat gloomy, and for good reason. Friends, our English translations make a valiant attempt to communicate the depth of this term. Yet no single English word suffices. A modern-day equivalent of this original word would be depressed. Now let's go to verse 19, where Jesus makes another inquiry. And the two reply, uh, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Did you hear that, friends? Let's try reading that as if we were them. But we had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Can we hear their doom and gloom? Can we hear their depression speaking? Can we hear their hopes dashed to the ground? Can we hear in their voices that the crucifixion ended it for them? The crucifixion was final. The crucifixion had stolen all their hopes for the kingdom of God to finally burst forth upon Israel. The crucifixion destroyed the notion that this really was their Messiah. After all, their Messiah, their hope, had been executed. End of story. We can almost side with these two disciples and conclude with them that this path to the passion of the Christ was unfortunately a detour, a failed mission, a grandiose scheme gone bad, a good plan that just went awry, the result of a messianic delusion on the part of a first century teacher, sage and revolutionary with a messiah complex that came to a sad and sudden end. After all, let's face it, friends, the skeptics and liberal scholars of our day leveled these very arguments against Christianity and the Bible and attacked the very core of our beliefs. 
The mainstream media even chime in by continually interviewing these liberal scholars as though they were the last word. But by carefully scrutinizing scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we discover that actually this path to the passion of the Christ was part of a blueprint laid out before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 tells us, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation or foundation of the world. Acts 2.22-24 say, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. As it turns out, Jesus' disciples subsequently understood numerous Hebrew scriptures to be pointing to or predicting their Messiah's death and resurrection. In Acts 2, 25 through 36, Peter quotes Psalm 16. In Acts 3, 18 through 23, he quotes Deuteronomy 18. In Acts 8, 29 through 35, Philip quotes Isaiah 53. In Acts 13, 23 through 41, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalms 2 and 16, Isaiah 55, and Habakkuk 1. This is all further confirmed by 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul draws from an obviously earlier church tradition already established. In the opening four verses, he declares, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is a reference to the Old Testament Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Shortly after, he adds, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of most men to be pitied. Friends, around the year 1930, Nikolai Berkarin, a Russian communist leader, journeyed from Moscow to Kiev. His mission was to address a large assembly. His topic, atheism. For one solid hour, he aimed his heavy atheistic artillery at Christianity, firing both arguments and ridicule. Finally, his tirade ended. Surveying the audience's faces, it looked to him to be smoldering ashes of people's faith. He then proudly demanded, Are there any questions? To his surprise, one man stood up and asked to speak. This man then walked forward, stepped to the platform, and stood next to Bukharin. The assembly was silent, breathless. This man also surveyed the crowd, gazing to the right and to the left. Suddenly he shouted an ancient Orthodox Christian greeting, Christ is risen! The assembly immediately sprung to their feet. Their responses sounded like an avalanche. He is risen indeed! Friends, being Greek, I can tell you what that Orthodox greeting is in its original language. Christos Anesti, meaning Christ is risen. And the reply, Anesti Alethos, meaning literally risen indeed, but understood as he is risen indeed. 
The name D. William Sangster may not ring a bell, but after World War II, as a prominent evangelical Methodist minister in Britain, he spearheaded a spiritual renewal movement. But in 1968, he contracted a disease that progressively paralyzed his body and eventually his vocal cords. On the Easter before he died, with great pain, he scribbled a note to his daughter with the few fingers that were still able to move. This note said, How terrible to wake up on Easter and have no voice to shout, He is risen! Far worse to have a voice and not want to shout it! In Matthew 28, 1-15, we find one of the resurrection accounts. The opening verses declare, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. He appeared like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Remember Christos Anesti, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Matthew's account is significant because it's the only gospel that records the first conspiracy theory, an alternate theory as to what happened to Jesus' physical body. Matthew twenty-eight eleven through 15, we read, The guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that happened. When the chief priests met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You're to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and get you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And friends, to this very day, in our time in history, alternate theories about what happened to Jesus' body abound. The skeptics and critics love to come out of the woodwork during this season and spout their so-called intelligent recreations of what happened. There are now some 17 theories that have been advanced that attempt to explain away the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Here's a sampling of the most popular ones to watch for. The legend theory. The resurrection accounts were actually legends that cropped up years after the time of Christ. The wrong tomb theory. After the angel told the women he is not here, see the place where they laid him, probably pointed to the tomb next door, but the women fled in fear. The hallucination theory. Jesus' disciples only thought they saw him, but they were actually hallucinating. The stolen body theories. The disciples themselves, or the Jewish or Roman authorities, stole Jesus' body. The ever-popular swoon theory. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, just fainted from exhaustion and blood loss. The coolness and dampness of the tomb revived him. And the Passover plot theory, that Jesus thought he was the Messiah and plotted a detailed plan to to concoct his resurrection. It was foiled, however, when the soldier speared him 
and he died shortly after. But these theories only distract us from the gospel records, which are authenticated in 1 Corinthians 15, written before the gospels. Friends, the truth is that in the resurrection account in Matthew 28, we find three plain statements made by the angel to the women in verse 6. First, he is not here, and the he is Jesus. Second, he has risen. And third, just as he said. Any alternate theory that claims it was not Jesus himself that rose from the dead, like the twin brother theory that Jesus' twin brother took him down from the cross and claimed to be the Messiah in his stead, makes the angel and Jesus out to be liars. Friends, listen to some statements made by Jesus or about Jesus before and after he was crucified. Remember Peter declaring that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? Right after that, Matthew says in 1621, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. In Luke's resurrection account in chapter 24, the angel said, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and then the third day rise again. This just reinforces the truth that he is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Jesus had risen from the dead. The women didn't go to the wrong tomb. The disciples weren't hallucinating. Jesus didn't swoon or faint on the cross and then revive. The disciples didn't steal his body and then fabricate a story that he rose from the dead. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Friends, the truth of Jesus' resurrection was so important to the first disciples and apostles that it was the benchmark of their first sermons. At Pentecost, Peter's first sermon in Acts 2 included, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Shortly after, Peter continues, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. 
Friends, if Easter, and you know I like to say Resurrection Day, means anything to us, it means that eternal truth is eternal. You can nail it to a tree, wrap it up in grave clothes, and seal it in a tomb, but truth dashed to the ground will rise again. Truth does not perish, it cannot be destroyed. Truth may be distorted, truth may be temporarily silenced, but truth has been compelled to carry its cross to Calvary's brow, but with the inevitable certainty that after every Black Friday dawns the truth of resurrection morning. It may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. He is not here. He has risen just as he said." Friends, a little three-year-old girl, Nicole, was as anxious for Easter to come as she had been for Christmas. Her parents took her shopping for a new pair of shoes. She remarked to her father, I can't wait for Easter. So dad asked, Honey, how do you know what Easter means? Nicole quickly replied, Yes, I do. Then her father continued, Well, what does it mean? In her own little sweet three-year-old way with arms raised high and a smile on her face, Nicole shouted at the top of her lungs, Surprise! Friends, what better word could possibly sum up the meaning of Resurrection Day? Surprise, death! Surprise, sin! Surprise, mourning disciples! Surprise, modern man! He's alive! Christos Anesti! Christ is risen! Anesti Alethos! He is risen indeed! Amen! Amen! Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. Let's pray for God's strength as we seek to live out the crucified and resurrected life through Christ, who's risen indeed, the path to the passion of the Christ paid off. Today's title, In the Crucifixion, Jesus' Blood Forgives Our Sins. In His Resurrection, We Now Walk in Newness of Life. Well, I love coming alongside you who are without a church home and you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts of A Word from the Word are at faithtalk1360.com. Podcasts are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at ChristianBody.net, a word from the word is heard in over 70 countries. Friends, please come alongside us and invest in the ministry of a word from the word this year so we'll be fully funded. Listeners like you keep a word from the word on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.